Namaste. So our reading today is uh, from Matthew 14. If you would turn in your Bibles, we're going to have any Bible on screen activity. <clears throat> and it's, a, it's about a, a miracle which we have read and spoken about and looked at for many years. It's become an ordinary, extraordinary miracle for us. So in Matthew 14, we're looking at Jesus feeding the 5,000. And so we're in verse 13 of Matthew 14. Is it going to go up on the screen, Steve? You're getting there. Good. Okay, so we're in John 14 and 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. The crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have only here five loaves of bread and two fishes, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let us pray. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, will you come now and take the thoughts of my heart, the meditations of my mind on this passage so I can uh, communicate life and encouragement and blessing from this passage to the folks who are here today. Lord, uh, I pray that each heart and mind will be open to receive that which you're saying to them individually because you're here to do them good and to encourage them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, I don't like football very much. Not very keen on football, which is always something, not a good way to start because people, there are people here who are passionate about football. I do like a bit of match of the day because you get all the highlights. But I can't be doing 90 minutes of ball passing. It does my head in to watch them just going back and forth, back and forth. But you know, I'm just about to change my opinion. Because this morning, if you read the Sunday Times, and I get it online and I get a hard copy as well, there's a very interesting article about Jose Mourinho, 
who's the um, coach, is it, of um, Chelsea. Thank you, Chelsea. Do you know, I might start supporting Chelsea. I know that they're doing well. It's, it's, you know, it's easy to support a team that's doing well. But he's written a book on strategy. And uh, there was something in the, in the Times this morning. I didn't, because I, I didn't have time to read the whole thing, I just noticed it. It says, uh, Jose Marino is a successful leader, renowned team builder, a motivator, whose objective is always to win, whose strategy is rooted in building the teams that suit the style of play he wants to impose on his own players and then on his opponents. He is a disruptor. He loves to surprise. And uh, I want to read that book. I have a feeling it's going to be a masterful book about strategy. And maybe next time I watch a football game, a whole football game, that I'll see his strategy and I'll get his his way of doing things. I'll see behind what's going on. Maybe I'll become a convert to football. Unlikely, but there we go. But what I thought this morning was uh, I'd like to be God's disruptor. You know, we're we're all sitting here very comfortably. It's nice and warm in here. And this is a great place to be on a Sunday morning. What can I say to positively disrupt your chain of thought or where you're at at the moment in God and where you'd like to be and how that change might come about? Maybe I can bring some strategic thinking uh, to the meeting this morning that might go, mean that you go away different than you came in. Or it could be dull and boring and we all go home and hope, hope he doesn't come too often to preach in our church. We don't know yet, do we? I have to say that I've got a reasonable track record. I've been here before and they've invited me back. So that's not such a bad thing, is it? If you're invited back. Ninety percent of my time as a Christian is talking to God, negotiating with God, getting things from God. And I suspect about ten percent of my time with God is relational. But you know that's going to change. Because I have an appointment with the grave. I'm 63 and I'm hoping to live a few more years. But truly I have an appointment with the grave. After which there will be no 90% and 10%. It's going to be 100%. And it's going to be about relationship only. The question is, do you crave that relationship? Is it uppermost in your mind and deeply embedded in your heart, this relationship with God? Is Jesus sufficient for you? Now, now I put a comma in there. Is Jesus sufficient for you? Because Jesus is always all-sufficient. He is everything we would ever need today, tomorrow, in the future. But is he sufficient for us now? How is my relationship with Jesus Christ? Are we, in, as it were, in practice for eternity Is it important for you to be in relationship with him now with a view to the future, the long-term, eternal future? Somebody once said to me, and I know it hasn't bear bear any theological substance to it, he said that there'll be people who won't want to go to heaven when they see it because they don't desire it. It's not what they thought it would be. And somehow they'd rather be somewhere else than heaven. For me, as I grow older in the faith, as I perhaps hopefully become wiser in the faith, relationship has to become all. And I I want to spend less and less of my time engaging with God on the basis of my substantial needs, whatever they might be. 
But it is hard to break away from what we've so often engaged with in terms of our prayer life and our worship and our uh, being with God to not be in a place where we're constantly talking to him about absolutely important things like our children, amen, and about our grandchildren maybe, and about our workplace environment, about the state of the church today and all these other things. But what the, the call from on my life right now, and I, I trust it will be a call upon your life too, is one of relationship with God. Because ultimately that's all we're going to have left. There will be nothing more but relationship. And how does that thought strike you? That all there is is Jesus. And is he sufficient? Is he enough for us? I truly believe he is. <clears throat> Therefore, my life is a journey of discovery. My life is a journey <clears throat> of knowing Jesus more. So that, in fact, I am gaining knowledge and understanding and, and wonder at who he is and what he's like now as a foretaste of what is to come long term. In fact, I am enjoying a new discovery period of my life because I've, I've initiated that as being primed to me, that discovering Jesus almost afresh is my now passion so that I'm preparing ultimately to be with him forever. I hope that's chiming with someone. Anyway, let's have a look at this passage and maybe some of this will tumble out later on. <clears throat> let's put it in some context because I always believe context is important when you're reading a passage of scripture. <clears throat> Contextually, the, the, there had, and by the way, this um, feeding of the 5,000 we'll find in all four Gospels. So if I say something which is not out of the Matthew reading, you'll realize that it's come from one of the other readings. For, instance, for example, the success of the, the, the disciples' ministry. They had got, he, Jesus sent them out two by two, and they came back hugely excited about what the Holy Spirit had done through them by way of preaching and teaching, of introducing Christ to the people, of um, healing the sick and driving out demons. So they came back, wow, this has been fantastic. But also, Jesus recognized that they were weary in that ministry. Jesus himself had gone through a very fruitful time. If you read the, read the passages around this historic period of his uh, ministry, he had been hugely busy and there had been a lot of success and thousands of people were interested to hear, know about, meet, have prayer from this Jesus. So he, he was busy and fruitful too. And he was tired. We also know, if we look around the passage, that his second cousin, we might say, John the Baptist, had been murdered. The relationship with John the Baptist and Jesus is an interesting one. We don't have time to go into it now. They were second cousins. They're Mary and Elizabeth, as Elizabeth is John's mother, were cousins, so I'm going to suggest second cousin is the relationship they had. Um, and I don't know that they would have necessarily spent time growing up as young people because they were certainly living in different areas of the country. And also, Elizabeth was elderly, and I suspect quite early in John's life his parents had died, and he had come to be trained uh, in a scene community down in, I think it would be southeast of Palestine. So they didn't necessarily know each other that well, but 
John was the one who said, when he baptized Jesus, there goes the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. So by the Spirit, John had known who Jesus was. And of course, in the womb, John had worshipped if we went right the way back to the Christmas story, or the story we tell at Christmas. And then John also was imprisoned, and whilst he got the sense of who Jesus was, he was confused why Jesus wasn't raising up a mighty army to slay the Roman army and to uh, do away with the, uh, that which was affecting Israel and releasing Israel from its bondage to another nation. He didn't understand what was going on. But clearly there was a, a, a relationship which had impacted both of them, and in the death of John, Jesus would have grieved. And so Jesus... Uh, was needing time to mourn the loss of John. And of course in the story, if we look around the text, we find things like an unusual boat ride back to Capernaum when uh, there was a storm. I've been on, I'm sure some of you have been on Galilee in a boat. You can't imagine like being on Lake Windermere is a similar thing, size I guess of lake, um, perhaps larger in the Sea of Galilee. But you can't imagine a storm coming up in the valley of the Jordan Valley like that, which would, which would uh, uh, put people's lives at risk. But they did, and Jesus came walking on the water, and that's a whole other story. But that, that is contextually where we're at in what's going on in the Bible at that time. And then Jesus, in Luke 9, just after this saying that Jesus, uh, for other Peter, saying that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And... Contextually, we cannot read this passage without then going on to John 6 about Jesus being the bread of life. And so we'll come to that shortly. And so let's look at the passage. We have a non-dramatic boat ride. There's no storm. There's no walking on water. They're just taking a, a leisurely cruise out of the busy area where Jesus was ministering to a place of solitude and rest where Jesus and his disciples can take it easy be together around each other, encourage each other, pray together, and so on and so forth. And that's where they were heading. I'm off to Brittany in a couple of weeks' time, and I'm, I, have this, I kind of feel the same as those disciples. I won't say the same as Jesus, that will be out of my league, but the same in the sense of just wanting to get away, wanting to, to, to rest. going away for a period of solitude and recuperation. They went by boat. But people, hungry people, spiritually hungry people, went by foot. They walked around the lake to find where Jesus was going, to catch up with him. That indicates to me that every day, ordinary folk have spiritual hunger. That has not changed from that day until this question for me is who has the spiritual bread to provide for the folks that we meet day by day hour by hour to feed them Jesus has handed on the ministry to us he's handed on the ministry of feeding hungry souls with spiritual bread to the members of Five Head Baptist Church and the churches around here you and me included it is a challenge which for me I believe the the spiritual power Uh, And to to deliver words of spiritual power comes out of a relationship with Jesus. And because I've been around the block a few times like you as Christian believers, and I've seen the times where there hasn't been that power to communicate faith to people, to communicate 
uh, bread, spiritual bread to people who are desperately needy. Because I haven't seen that happening, I'm saying, God, how can that happen today more and more? I'm not saying it isn't happening everywhere. Some places it is. It's great. But we, in reality, are not seeing that. Therefore, what I'm doing is crying out to God for the power to deliver words that are like spiritual bread to people. And it comes back to one thing and one thing only, which is my relationship with, with God. <clears throat> so Jesus is willing to sacrifice his downtime for the needy, the people who are coming, who are hungry. He has compassion for them. He's, he wants to heal the sick. He can see the, the lame and the sick, and he wants to heal them. I'm not so sure about the disciples. Disciples so reflective of me and you. As we'll hear from their comments later, I'm not sure they want to know anything else but a holiday. And I'm wondering, as I prepare, even as I say this now, as I'm preparing to go in a holiday in a week or two's time to Brittany, whether somebody will break into my life who will be very needy, and therefore I have a choice to make, whether I shall have compassion upon them, or whether I shall say, there's a ferry to Brittany which I'd like to get on right now, and uh, I'm afraid you don't, you're, not, you're not upscale enough for me to take an interest in you. Five thousand people heard Jesus speak. I wonder if that's not a bigger miracle than feeding the five thousand. How do you speak to five thousand people? I'm using a PA, and there's about thirty people in here right now. Now imagine five thousand people, and I have spoken in Africa to five thousand people with a great big PA system. But how much physically, how much space is that going to take up? Now. Some of us have been to Galilee, and there are, there are some wonderful hillsides, and I'm sure there will be an, a, you could create an amphitheater, as it were, in the hillside. <clears throat> but even so, have you ever thought about what it must have been like for Jesus to communicate to 5,000 people and for them to hear every word that he says? I think it's almost impossible. <clears throat> and that's why I think it is a greater miracle to... Um, as, as feeding, feeding the 5,000 uh, to speak to them. And here's a question. What sort of silence is created when 5,000 people really want to listen to God? Imagine that. The silence that needs to be created. There's a hunger there, isn't there? That's what it's indicating to me. And Paul picks it up about spiritual words connecting to spiritual people. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit, is who, is, uh, the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. Jesus spoke human words, intelligible words, words that they could understand in their, in their local language. But to be able to communicate clearly to 5,000 people, to reach out to them, having healed them as well, is a major miracle. It's about spiritual words being heard by spiritually hungry human beings. And I'm not sure that it was always about the physical hearing of the individual. I think it was deeper than that. It was spiritual. Question is, how good a listener am I? Am I sufficiently hungry to create the silence that is needed for 
God to speak to me. <clears throat> I run a team of chaplains, and I've got a real mix of people in the team. And uh, one of them is the, one of the quietest men you'll ever meet. And when I first met Tim, um, who's a Sainsbury's chaplain, um, I, I really doubted whether he could seriously be a chaplain. Because, see, he, he does something which I don't do very well. He's an incredibly good listener. And I've come over the last year or so that I've been doing this job to hugely respect Tim's ability to listen to people. And at Christmas, we have a business carol service. Uh, 300 people come from the business community. And uh, we ask a business leader to talk about the benefits of chaplain as far of chaplaincy as far as they're concerned. And we had the manager of Sainsbury's, Richard, come and speak about chaplaincy. Now, we don't script it. He's not, as I understand it, a Christian believer. So we take a risk. And he spoke well. He spoke um, engagingly, insightfully, uh, hu with humor. But at the end, he quoted a motto that we use. Uh, chaplaincy is the church that's left the building. And he said, I know that's your motto, but one thing I hope is that Tim never leaves ours. And he meant it. Tim is a very good listener. I can't claim the same for myself. But are you a good listener to God? If there was one thing most of us would agree on, I hope all of us agree on, that it's wonderful when God speaks to us and we know of a clarity, there's a resonance in our heart that God has said something to us. And when was the last time you heard God speak to you? Disciples said something about, look, it's getting late. These folks are tired. They're hungry. You need to send them away and let them buy food somewhere. Reality was this is out in the middle of nowhere and there were hardly any places you could buy food. But it really reflected uh, the state of, you know, the humankind, the, the, the heart of tired men who really wanted just solitude and time away from what was going on. It reflected. In other words, they focused on the problem, they saw the issues and decided the best thing to do was to get, get rid of the problem, get rid of the issues by sending them away. But Jesus said, no, I, don't look there look somewhere else, look to God, and I will make, there will be a provision for these people. For nothing is impossible with God, said Jesus at another place. I think it was Luke 1, actually, early on in Luke. How often have I been the, opportunistically the person who could have brought to someone a word in season, an encouragement, some finance, some bread, if you will, to some folks, and that somehow my own inner weariness, my own limitations have uh, discounted and not taken hold of that opportunity because I look to my own needs and not to those of the person sufficiently and then look to God to make the provision. What Jesus was doing was teaching in this miracle was to teach them his ways as well as his power. It's not just about having and utilizing the power of God for good. It's about what Jesus, how Jesus sees things. In other words, he sees things as an opportunity to uh, reveal God's power, to be compassionate, to be concerned for other human beings. And when we see that, 
What is our reaction? What is my reaction? And I know at the, I work in a hospital one day a week and I, um, I go around the wards and, you know, after a few conversations I'm quite weary and I get very tired just having somebody over here having a bit of a cough. Oh, you've got some. Sorry. <clears throat> and, and I'd rather go back to my office and have coffee at that point. But can I go the extra mile? Can I just go on? ministering a little longer because maybe the next patient I see really needs to hear a word in season from the Lord. So Jesus' response was clearly linked to what he knew was about to happen and also an encouragement to both the disciples and to us to look for the, the, the opportunity for a miracle. The great thing is that when we're at the end of our Abilities, when we're at the end of our provision, when we're at the end of everything that we have, isn't that the time when God would want to show us his power? Would we not want to walk into his power out of our own lack of personal ability and a personal uh, faith, if you will? There is some parallels here, of course, with uh, things that have happened in the past. Uh, the people of Israel, a couple of thousand years ago, before that rather, were in Sinai and wandering around in the desert, still looking to get into that promised holy land, as we now call it, the promised land. And what did God do? What did he do then? He provided manna. He provided food. And uh, that was an incredible miracle in itself. And here we have God the Son providing the same miracle of making provision for people who were needy, providing them healing, <clears throat> providing them of bread to eat. But Jesus is not Moses, and Moses is not Jesus. Moses was a prophet of God. Jesus is God. And he provides something more, as we see in John 6 shortly, where he makes provision of himself, the bread of life. That will meet the, not the physical needs of the stomach and the physical needs of the body. Not that alone. But he will provide the spiritual needs of the inner man that every one of us needs. He is the bread of life. Five loaves and two fishes. Now in another of these readings we find that it's provided by a young boy. Uh, a couple of thoughts about that. Some people have suggested, liberal scholars perhaps suggested that Everyone there had a bit of food tucked away. And if they were all to share, they'd have enough and some to spare. I don't get that. There's nothing in Scripture that shows that Jesus isn't capable of providing a miracle like the one we see in the feeding of the 5,000. There's no need to downplay the miracle like that. I do believe, however, there's something to teach us from the ba on the basis of if we share out what we have, then there wouldn't be the starving millions that we now see in the world today. That if we were more generous with what we have, that what we own, what we have in our bank accounts and so forth, then the people of the world will be looked after. I think we can get that from the teaching. In other words, the boy only had this much, but what do we have? What can we give in service of mankind? 
And no matter what it is, and in fact in our own eyes how small things may be, our small giftings, our small bank accounts, our small uh, personal abilities and intellect and so forth, if we give it to God and say, Lord, that's all I have, but what I have I give to you, will you multiply it? Will you do something with that that is extraordinary? Which is extraordinary. And of course, at the end of the passage, we understand human nature again, and a little bit of John again, really, where if you look across these passages, the crowd, having seen the miracles of healing, having seen the wonder of the feeding of the 5,000, they say, this is the Messiah, this is the King, we'll take him now, we'll crown him as King up in the Galilean hills, and we'll all march down to Jerusalem. And... That will be the end of the Romans and Israel will again be free. And of course that's not the way of Jesus. That is not the way of peace. That is not what he came to do. He came with a bigger vision than Israel. He came with a vision of the world. He came for a vision with a vision of us. And so that's why Jesus moved away from the crowd. He sent his disciples on a boat across the sea. He went to a solitary place to get on with his time with God and his Uh, solitude and his uh, rest and recuperation and then of course we read the story afterwards about him walking on the water but we need to turn to John uh, John 6 because I think this passage that we've just read in Matthew 14 uh, is incomplete with the rest of the story because uh, we see how the people who were um, who had met Jesus then had been fed with that wonderful miracle then follow on and find Jesus again over at Capernaum. So if we turn there into John 6. And in verse 24 it says, Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, You're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. In other words, my, my words may not have touched you, warns Jesus. He said, I don't think you got what I was about, what I'm saying to you. You simply enjoyed the benefits of the miracle. Jesus had given them eternal words about his Father and the kingdom, but the bread and the fish captured their attention more than that. And I totally get that. I can see that my physical and heart needs and the immediacy of my needs can dominate. Jesus comes a close second sometimes, insomuch that he provides for me food and the body's strength, and my minds and moral needs and the need to fill them and protect them and nurture them will pass away because I have an upcoming appointment, as I said earlier, with the grave. But for now, what dominates is all those things, potentially. And so instead of a relationship built with God upon me seeking after him and understanding him and relating to him, all these other things can cloud and get in the way of what really should be going on. So I totally get why they would focus in upon the miracle of bread and so forth. 
Verse 30. Rather, in verse 28. There comes like a justification question. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. It's only, it, and I, my notes say it's, only, it's enough only in this life to believe in the one who Jesus sent. And so they go on, it goes on in verse 30. So they asked him, what sign will you give them that we may see it and, and believe in you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is sufficient food for me and you. And Jesus tells us that he is the only substance for life that we need and they needed. There's nothing more than him. In eternity, there's nothing more than Jesus as the triune God. Is he sufficient? Is Jesus enough? This morning... Strangely, my reading in this book, as we close uh, this part of the service, from Grace for Today, was about the issue of Christ being sufficient. And I'd just like to read some of this to us and to encourage us. And it's based on Revelation 22. We don't need to go there. Uh, 22.4. They shall see his face, it says. Just that passage. They shall see his face. This is the great object of our hope the great desire of our hearts, the great joy of heaven and the great fullness of our heavenly reward, the very Christ who died in our place at Calvary, fully fully satisfying the wrath and justice of God for us all, will be seen by us. We shall literally see his face. It is delightfully true that we shall see and enjoy many things in heaven. But that which is now desired and will then be enjoyed above all else, is the sight of Christ himself. It seems to me that our text also implies a spiritual sight of Christ, which is far sweeter. In the next world, we shall have a greater ability to see Christ than we now possess. We shall see him perfectly. We shall know him fully. And our vision of him will be uninterrupted. The paradise of God is is a heaven of pure, intense, eternal, perfect, spiritual fellowship with Christ question I had when I read that is, is am, am I looking forward to that? Is that my goal? Is that what I'm passionate about now, to enjoy that in those days? And what am I doing now to prepare for that time? In that future estate of glory and bliss, we shall have a clear, undimmed vision of Christ, because everything which now hinders our sight of him will be removed. Our many sins, our earthly cares, and our sorrows in this world now prevent us from seeing our Lord as we desire. But then there will be nothing between us and our Savior. In glory there will be nothing in our hearts to rival rival Christ. We shall love him as he ought to be loved, perfectly. Christ will not only be supreme, he will be all. 
Why do we consider this vision of Christ the greatest bliss of heaven? Why do we place such importance upon this one aspect of our heavenly inheritance? The reason, the reason is just this. When we see the Lord's face, our salvation will be complete. Every evil thing will be completely eradicated from us. When we see his face, we shall be conscious of his favor. And when these eyes see his face, a complete transformation will take place. We should be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall see things as he sees things. We shall think as he thinks. Our will will be the one with his will. Our hearts will be one with his heart. Then, when we see his face, we shall be perfectly satisfied. The journey we are on is a journey towards that satisfaction, a journey towards the time when seeing him face to face, we will completely be satisfied in every way. Right now, the journey is partly to do with that and partly to do with all the other things that are going on in our lives right now. And whilst all those things are important, family, school, work, grandchildren, whatever, our journey will end in being completely satisfied with one person, that is Jesus Christ. And my passion and my communication, as badly as it might be today, is to say to you and to myself, let us make Christ our goal now, because one day he will be all that there is, and there'll be nothing else. And I believe we can enjoy more of Christ as he is, as we will know him then, right now. And that is... He who would come and feed us with the bread of himself still does that today. We don't want to be be those of Matthew 14, shall we say, who want to be filled, want to be healed, want to receive the practical and daily needs of our lives met. Not just that, because yes, we do need those things, but we want to be the people of John 6 who are saying, Christ, feed us with your very self with your very nature, with your very personality, with your very goodness, with your very love. That is what we want to be feeding on today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,